Hey guys, thanks for joining us for Coffee with Joe. I'm Joe Vachika, and today I'm sitting down with Stu Starkey. Stu is running for Congress in CD4 against uh, Gosar. Right. So Stu, tell us a little bit more about yourself, and you're never going to get this question again. Why are you running? <laughs> okay, so I'm going to introduce myself by answering that question. I'm right. running to make sure that CD4 has the best voice possible on the issues and what is coming up as one of the most crucial elections, you know, certainly of my lifetime. It's, you know, cliche, but it's never been more true. Um, one of my big focuses is to make sure our turnout is the highest it's ever been and that we get those new voters out to make sure that we can target those 11 electoral votes um, for the presidency and also to make sure that Mark Kelly defeats Martha McSally. Um, a little about me now, I'm a school principal in South Phoenix, so it's sort of a cornerstone of the issues hopefully we'll talk about today. Um, 62, married for 30 years to Cheryl, uh, the love of my life. Uh, we have two daughters and, you know, when we talked about doing this and making sure that we had, you know, a voice back out in what has been traditionally, you know, a tough district to win over the last decade, uh, she gave it uh, her blessing and here we are. That's great. Yeah. Uh, now I'm noticing a little bit of maybe a New York accent. Is that what I'm Slight hearing? New York accent. Slight New York. So you're yeah. born in New York yeah. State City? Born and raised uh, right up until I went away to college. I went okay. to college in Philadelphia. Got a degree in accounting with a minor in textiles, believe it or not. <laughs> really? um, worked in the industry for years, uh, both uh, independently as well as for IZOD, um, helping to manage plants and, uh, and cost control. And uh, moved back there for a little while during my career, but for okay. the most part, 25 years now here in the Phoenix and Arizona. Sure. I'm from Pennsylvania, so okay. a little bit north of Philly, Scranton, Wilkes-Barre okay, area. Sure. Yeah. So, so yeah. yeah. Just the trivia, I raced horses at Pocono Downs. Did so you really? <laughs> I, I know your neighborhood. There you go. Yeah. Oh, beautiful, yeah. the Poconos up there. Yeah. Uh, so uh, what makes you, so you're in a primary right now with, with another candidate running for, on the Democratic ticket. Uh, what makes you the best candidate between the two of you? So I think, you know, we're very similar in terms of issues and stances. You know, I'm maybe a little more liberal uh, and proud of it, you know, uh, than Delina. But I've met her and we've been to several places. I think she's a great lady and would be a great candidate. Um, but I think it's my outreach, my experience. You know, I did do a race for the Democratic Party as a Senate candidate in 2004. People can see on the website my debate against John McCain. So having the ability to reach out, coalesce, around issues and the experience I have in my life as it relates to the issues that I think are important to our, you know, our party and to our state, uh, make me just the strongest candidate, especially against somebody like Paul Gosar, who represents the extremist wing of the Republican Party. So I think as people get to know me and what I've stood for and how I've lived my life, I'm the kind of candidate that want to uh, end this uh, despair we see in the U.S. House and in the White House. So what do you stand for? What, what are some of the big policy points that you think are the most important for this election? Okay, so let's go over the pieces that, as I learned more about Paul Gosar, made it a requirement for, you to, for me to get out and, and, and enter this race. Paramount, 20 years as an educator, uh, 19 of them in South Phoenix. I cannot look at the students I have and the students that have already gone through my school and say that what we're living through with somebody like a Paul Gosar who calls brown people coming across the border terrorists and supports a program where kids are taken from parents and supports a program where kids are put into cages and you can call them anything you want but they're cages and make sure that they can't get flu vaccines from doctors who offer their time. When we have somebody who so disrespects humanity we have to stand up and we have to fight for it. So win or lose, I want everybody to know that I did all I could for justice. 
okay, and that, that sure. we have a sense of human dignity. That also leads into what it's like to try to run a school in an era where Betsy DeVos wants to close public schools and is attacking all of our funding. And the next one they said after the next election on their hit list is the free and reduced lunch program. Now, I'm a Title I school, most of my families are in poverty, low-income families, and if you can't tell me that America, especially in what they want to call this great economy, can't afford to give a kid a breakfast and a lunch while he's about to do seven hours of studies, there's something wrong in America. So the programs that we try to maintain and run, and I'm very proud of my school, and I'll hopefully tell you a little bit about that later, but the public education system is under attack by a Republican uh, House and by the President of the United States, and coalesces against Betsy DeVos, who is an evil woman, especially when it comes to her policies and how it's hurting kids. So there's two. Then the final piece that made me say Paul Gosar has to be taken out of office is his unquenching desire to mine uranium in the Grand Canyon. I take two field trips with kids up there every year. I have a daughter who lives up that way. Love going with my wife, hiking Bright Angel Trail, at least as far as I can get down, not all the way, of course. Sure. And then to hear that his vision is to open uranium mines within the canyon, risking the Colorado River as well as some of our aquifers in the north for you know, decades, if not hundreds of years to come. So you put together all of those pieces, there's no way I'm sitting this out. Oh, for sure. And I've actually hiked the rim to rim for the Grand Canyon, okay. and I did it in... In a, in a day, <laughs> amazingly. Oh, congratulations. So I know, I know I, how I tough make the it. Bright Angel is because yeah. it's, it's a tough trail. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but um, no, I, I think that that's a really good point is that uh, something like a national treasure like the Grand Canyon is something we can pretty much all agree on universally that right. that is important to maintain, important to be, right. be mindful of and yeah. not ruin the water supply that comes from the Colorado River in right. that area. So, yeah. so I definitely agree with, with you there. And, and just this past week, I was down in Yuma, and I'm watching the reclamation you know, of the watershed area down there, you know, right on the border and through the river. And that's the thing. We, we always think of you know, the beauty of the Grand Canyon, and to me, it's breathtaking every time I go. But go all the way down the river, and it's, just, mm -hmm. it's a lifeblood for this portion of the state. And it's something that we have to understand, not only from an economic standpoint, the vitality and the jobs it creates, but just what are we leaving for our children? Right. If we're not willing to say that this is important, that we're willing to sell this out because some Canadian company, you know, writes your campaign check. And, mm -hmm. you know, again, that relates back to why Paul Gosar has got to go. Gotcha. Um, since we talked about immigration, I'll talk about immigration here. Sure. I, I do want to talk about the budget, too, because okay. I'm a numbers guy. I think everybody here knows that I'm a numbers guy. And when okay. I saw you talk about budget on your site, I, I definitely wanted to talk. But immigration. Right. So another thing that I am, I, I, I try to think of being as bipartisan as I can, yeah. right? And I don't think that every single issue we could find a bipartisan solution for it. I'm not too naive to think that, but I think there's a lot of things we actually agree on, Democrats and Republicans. And I'm a Democrat. I, right. I think everybody knows I'm a Democrat. I'm a PC here. Um, but immigration seems to be one of those things where we can definitely agree, or, or the vast majority of us, I think Democrats and Republicans, can agree that putting kids in cages separating families is not a good immigration policy. Whether you believe that Barack Obama started this policy or you believe that right. you know, right now is when the policy started, we can agree that it's not a good way to conduct our, our immigration policy. Right. So, so what is a solution for this? Is, is there anything that can be done? So I look back to you know, how my family started and how we got here. Yeah. And great-grandfather you know, uh, escaped from gulags in Russia made his way to Turkey, got to America, came through Ellis Island, 
couple of pennies, but a trade. He was a hat maker. Mm -hmm. In those days, believe it or not, you know, everybody wore a hat. So, so he got a job and he started the Starkey, you know, lineage here in the United States. Textiles makes a little more sense now. There you go. There you go. And my dad was in it. My brother was in it. Sure, you bet, sure. You betcha. So, so what happens is we look at the opportunity and what America meant to him. Mm -hmm. And whether you're a Democrat or Republican, independent, we should recognize that. And there's a beauty in that, you know. And, and, you know, I guess growing up and living in a place where Ellis Island is, you know, there and the Statue of Liberty you can see every day on your way to work, you understand what it meant for him to come here. Well, that spirit should be no different today. So what we should agree on as Republicans and Democrats is if we're facing a large immigration, we faced it when the Irish had the famine and, and came here. We faced mm -hmm. it in different times over different generations. Well, our spirit should be the same. We can't be led by a president that said, I'm banning all Muslims. That's one of his first and top priorities. We can't be led by a country that says we're sealing the border and putting in no door. That's the thing. Ellis Island was a gateway to citizenship. The problem we have now is we're creating an environment which says not only are we blocking you, but we're not even going to have a gateway. So what we should be able to do as Republicans and Democrats is recognize that legal immigration without prejudice and bigotry should be the mm -hmm. standard we have in the United States. And then let's come up with a means through budgeting, working with Border Patrol, and how can we have people you know, get to that door. And if we do that. I think we can get our decency back. Oh, for sure. So I think what people would ask is, are you for just opening the border and letting people come across? Or is there, is there nuance to that policy? Is there, is there an, a path to citizenship? How, what does that look like? Yeah. Is it a visa lottery? No. I, so again, I, I, a lot of what I stand for in my mm -hmm. life is based on the rocks of the beliefs I've had my entire mm -hmm. life and watching sure. my family and experiences that I've had. I believe there's nothing wrong with a system like we had for 100 plus years with Ellis Island. Now we can do it right outside of San Diego. Okay? We can have the same thing. If you want to come here, please come here, register here, welcome to America. In a few years, you're a citizen if you, you know, abide by the laws of the country. Um, I always said the thing that bothers me the most about DACA is DACA was a way to say, let's have a compromise without citizenship. That, that's terrible, and that's a, a misjustice to those young people. What we need to do is realize that the people that came to this country, you know, and th that walked their kids a thousand miles so that they could hopefully have a better life for their children, we need to respect them. And we need to respect them from the government side as much as our humanity side. And I believe it's a dear friend of mine once said, you want to have a wall, fine, have a bigger door than you have of the wall. And if we do that, we create a system that eventually makes them citizens. That's good enough for me. Sure. And just to throw a quick story out there, I was just at a, a Christmas party here in town and I was talking to somebody that works economic development in the Quad Cities. And I mean, she brought in so many jobs to this area. I mean, brings in manufacturing groups that, right. that it seems to be that, that holy grail of what, what all these communities try to bring in or, or manufacturing jobs and, and other jobs in general. And I found out that she's, she's a, um, she, she was born in, I, I forget where she was born, but she's, she's a DACA recipient and she um, uh, has now a degree and is contributing to the, the, right. the cities, like our, our quality of life here in Prescott, contributing to that. And I was just amazed that it, it almost seems heinous to not have a path to citizenship for right. someone who's, who's so invested. I, I mean, she's an American in pretty yeah. much every sense of the word. Right. 
because I, only that her, her parents didn't bring her, or she wasn't born on U.S. soil, her parents didn't bring her at the time. I, I mean, for how much she's contributed, it's amazing to me that, that we can't look at some of these people that, that are really contributing to, to our, our way of life and not affording them the same I, citizenship that, right. that we have. So, so I'm a principal in South Phoenix, sure, South Central sure. Phoenix. 88% of my families are Hispanic. Um, in, in their background. A lot of them are first arriving families, so they come to Central Phoenix where they're more comfortable and, and more openly received. And these are amazing families who do amazing things and they're the hardest working people you're ever gonna meet. And the idea that from a legislative standpoint, we're attacking them, we're filling them with fear um, is a disgrace to this country. You know, the, the thought of her going with, with her, her skill set and how hard she worked, her work, work ethic, going yeah. anywhere else in the world right. if, if the DACA program changes and she can't, she, she will have to leave. To have her go and contribute to another country is just insane in my mind, considering how much she does here in the U.S. So, right. And we have I young mean, people, both young, young men and young ladies in the military, risking their lives right now. Afghanistan, around the world, or on call, you know, still, you know, here in the states, and we're telling them if we catch you, you're not a citizen. Right. Where, where does that come from? Right. So hopefully, yeah, let's uh, have a secure border, but an open door that welcomes people. The oh, same sure. Way they There's definitely the other side of that is that there are people that we don't that right. don't get those rights. Right. That they've they've done terrible things in the countries they come from. That's totally right. understandable. Yeah. You know. So I I agree. I think yeah. that we have there to we have go. some sort of discussion to have. Yeah a real change to the immigration system that we have. And as people have to vote now in this election, you can look at Paul Gosar and where he stands, and worse than that, what he says, and you can look at me and you know there's no reason for Paul Gosar to return to Congress. So Stu, uh, the other thing, I was trying to pull it up here, but I'm having trouble getting it up. You talked specifically about budget on your website. And budget, I, I do consider myself a little more fiscally conservative than, right. you know, I, I'm pretty socially liberal. That's, that's yeah. just who I am. But I'm a numbers guy. I look at the numbers. I can see that right now, at least for 2019, we have a budget deficit, $984 million, I think is right. what I saw recently yeah. for, for the House. And how do we make that up, right? It, it almost seems like we, we've got to either do one of three things. We've got to cut, make cuts to the budget. Right. We've got to change the tax structure, or we have to increase GDP. What, what is the solution? For or or all of the above. Or all and, of the and, above. and in the crisis and, we're in, we really have to look at all of the above. So let's take them in pieces. And one of the things that nowhere in America are they talking about, but we do have it you know, as part of my campaign, and a key bedrock issue is we're also $24 trillion in debt. And if you want to talk about a national security issue, okay, well, you know, be, be a member of the community, have your credit card bills. Sooner or later, as those bills run up and more and more of your income is paying the interest charges and the finance charges mm -hmm. on your credit cards, less and less goes into supporting your lifestyle. And it's no different for this country. And we've now gotten to a point of $24 trillion and hundreds of billions of dollars a year sent in interest payments. When people say, how can we afford changes to college tuition and medical care, stop having to pay $600 billion a year you know, to foreign countries or to banks, you know, or, or, you know, Russian oligarchs and Chinese military leaders holding on to our treasury notes. So we can look at the budget not only in terms of what are we in a deficit for this year, but what are we doing to my kids and future generations, you know, um, by leaving behind this massive debt. So I have a specific idea as it relates to the national debt, and that is that in new budgets we take 5% of government revenue 
and we assign it specifically to reducing debt. So we're now looking at a you know, 20-year plan, but taking that you know, $24 mm -hmm. trillion dollars down and making it into a manageable part of our GDP. Uh, I'm also kind of a fiscal conservative because that's, I spent you know, almost 20 years trying to run my own business as well as working for sure. companies, you know, you know as well. So we need to have a new look at the way we do business taxes. If, if, you know, I'll go on record right here, I love Bernie Sanders. And we look, he always posts how many corporations pay zero in taxes. So the debate is always we need to work on tax rates. My idea mm -hmm. is different. We need to stop loopholes. What we need to start to do is look at, because you could tell Amazon, okay, your tax rate is now 50%, and he'll get five more lawyers, and those lawyers are going to turn around and say, here's another way we can afford enough, mm -hmm. you know, uh, yep. pay, pay no taxes. So I believe we need to tax revenue instead of taxing profits. Just like you would go to the supermarket and on your receipt it tells you where the state you know, sales taxes and what mm -hmm. local taxes are, you would also have a 1% or 2% you know, tax rate that would help go. And that would cover the business side. So why should a businessman love that? Now he knows exactly what's ahead. And he can either pass it on or he can work through his cost savings you know, so that he's aware. You know. But if I do a million dollars, 2% of that is going to go to the federal government. So now he doesn't have to worry about depreciation schedules. He doesn't have to make decisions on whether to buy new machinery, expand another mm -hmm. factory based on a change that the government may make later. He has a constant. So there's a revenue source where now we're making Amazon just as accountable as we're making the guy down the block and the plumber down the block who's getting squeezed in his business, sure. working hard, you know, self-employed, maybe hopefully you know, some employees with him, and he's paying federal taxes. And it's time that the corporations do the same, and the easiest way to do that is to go after revenue. Mm -hmm. Now, personal income taxes, I don't want 50%, 70% tax rates. I, I'm not that kind of a liberal, okay? <laughs> I'm a liberal who believes in low taxes, bringing in more money by creating more opportunity. But the same thing. We don't need pages and pages of deductions for the rich, while the average working man can fill out a 1040, you know, he's done in an hour, and he's paying a higher tax rate, you know, than the wealthy are. Um, we need sure. an escalating tax for the wealthy, but we also need it fair so that a guy who went out and worked hard you know, was able to you know take care of his family. So I think the um, maybe the, the the other side of that argument would be, and and I agree with you actually. I think that that is a, it's a three step goal, right? We yeah. need to we need to probably cut some places. We're going to need to increase our our change in tax structure and increase GDP in some way to, right. to make to make our, our budget work. I think the flip side would be why pull um, money away from corporations that might be providing jobs for the U.S. and what would what would be yeah. the, I, I think maybe what I'm alluding yeah. to is maybe like trickle-down economics would be the... <laughs> yeah, I, I understand, but what I would tell you is because that's not what we're doing anymore. Mm -hmm. What we're doing now is watching CEOs make 200 to 300 times more than the worker on the line. In the old days, it was 20 times more, you know. Mm -hmm. He had the nicer house on the hill, but the other person could still afford to live by the plant. What we're seeing today is actual corporate greed from the mega corporations. And we need to do something in order to level that field again. Because in the old days, CEO said, yeah, I'll make an investment in my plant because why give it in taxes? You know, 70% under Ronald Reagan. So, you know, I don't want to pay it in taxes, so I'll expand my business. We'll do better. I'll give a raise to my workers. Now what we're seeing is they're keeping the money. And that's not a strong American economy. That's, that's something, a house of cards, mm -hmm. that's ready to crumble. So. Right. No, and I, and I agree with that as yeah. well. I think that, you know, if we can have companies invest more in their company and in growth for GDP in the U.S., right. I think is a much better solution for, 
for, yeah, for that. And that's the other thing we need to look at. I, I recently spoke to you know one of our, our union friends and you know working for, on endorsement you know meetings and so on, and they asked if I'm happier under the new agreement coming up for Mexico, Canada, and the United States. And I said, look, I was opposed to NAFTA when it came in, and I'm opposed to this one. And the reason I'm opposed to this one is it doesn't mandate a wage rate to tariff system or a tax system based on that. And as long as we continue to allow factories to pay such ridiculously low wages to their workers, it's tough for us to have the kind of manufacturing economy we had here. We were kidding a little bit ago, I come out of the textile and the apparel industry. That was decimated in the early days. It wasn't decimated by China and Vietnam and you know, so as it is now, it was decimated by the Caribbean basin. You know, an initiative to improve the Caribbean mm -hmm. basin. But American factories were closing because we were paying a buck and a half an hour you know, to workers in the Caribbean. So I right. think we need to start setting our eyes on, do we have salary justice for American workers? And the greatest thing we can have is more and more manufacturing done in the United States. Sure, sure. No, I, I, that's kind of what I agree with as well. So I, I definitely, definitely agree with you there. So I hope the Chamber of Commerce is willing to, you know, have me out, you know, instead of only Republican candidates, and really take a hard look at what we mean for business, sure. you know, and, and the, uh, I think improvements we can make, especially, you know, in this CD, you have a lot of small business owners or mid-sized manufacturers, and we really need to protect them a lot more than even the new agreements are. Sure, sure. Uh, I do want to talk about... Um I've been reading about these the SNAP benefits right now, that the administration is, is looking at cutting SNAP benefits, and I've heard about these harvest boxes, and I'm, I'm not familiar with SNAP benefits or harvest boxes, but I do know that for, I, and I had a sheet from the USDA that I, I had printed out, and I didn't bring it, but 10% as of 2017 of households in CD4 received SNAP benefits, and, and it broke down that list further. Mm -hmm. But should, should we be making the eligibility requirements for SNAP more Difficult? Should we? Okay, so I, I, I've said already to you, and, and hopefully for all those watching, base voting for me on the way I live my life. Now, this morning at my school, you know, and it's, it's going on now, as a matter of fact, I'm mm. you know, proud to be up here with you, you know, and, and, and for all your viewers, but we're giving away 125 turkeys and food boxes for our school families who are in need. Um, so that they can have a better Christmas than they might have been able to afford. So I do not understand the mentality of America that when a family is needy or hungry, that we deny them a benefit. So cuts to those programs is one of the driving forces that brings me into this campaign. And as you travel CD4, as you mentioned, and you go into places, you know, into like Mojave County, into La Paz County, where just door to door or at events and people tell you the struggles that they're having, um, the issues they're having with heating costs now as we get into winter. Mm -hmm. um, we have to decide who we are, you know, and we have to decide what our values are as, as a people and that as a people becomes the standard for our nation. And the idea that we want to cut eligibility for families in need, that we want to cut benefits for people who served in our armed forces and have needs. The fact that there isn't a mental health facility at all in the entire county of Mojave County, 
those are things where we have to stop and reflect. And as we head into this election in 2020, from the White House, from Mark Kelly versus Martha McSally, to my campaign against Paul Gosar, we have to look and decide what are our values as a people. And the idea that we are cutting those benefits at a time when clearly a percentage of our nation is in dire need, well, that's why I'm here with you today, because this is wrong. And I appreciate you being here and talking about yeah. it. these are really important issues. And I know we threw some hard balls like why you're running, but, but these are really complex issues yeah. that I think require really complex solutions. So uh, since we were talking about, uh, we were talking men mental health and you had mentioned schools as well, what can you do from Congress to affect some of the changes to Arizona's school status? I think 48th right now, if I'm, mm -hmm. if I'm right for, is it Depends on your list. We've hit, we've hit the bottom in many of the, of I, the surveys. I, I've heard but, that. But if we're going to so, celebrate being 48th, again, we talk about <laughs> reflecting on where our values are. Um, so what can you do as a congressman to affect those changes, at least in the state for Arizona, or bringing like a, a medical facility, a, a yeah. mental health facility to Mojave? What, what okay, so let's align it towards schools, okay? okay sure. Because it's those cuts that impact the ability for me to build my school to what you know, we really want to have you know, for schools. And I invite people to follow my school you know, on Facebook and see the amazing things we do. Um, we received an award in 2014 from John Hoopenthal, the Secretary of Education, a conservative Republican, uh, came to my school and presented mm -hmm. us with the Spotlight on Innovation Award um, for the changes and leading the way in new technology um, for, for our kids. And this past uh, couple of months ago, I was named the STEM principal in Arizona by Grand Canyon University and the sponsors oh, of that great. award. So what I can tell you is we're very proud of what we can do, but there's also so much more we need to do. And what I can tell you congressmen can do is they can improve Title I and Title IV funding so that we can have counselors in our schools, so mm -hmm. that we can have after-school programs and not face the cuts that we're facing, you know, again, under a Betsy DeVos regime. Um, we can do a lot of impactful things, both in terms of the product we have on our campuses, and we can also do a lot in the care of our kids. Um, and one of them, for instance, counselors, resource officers, uh, many high schools used to have probation officers or school resource officers, and those things all became you know, victims to budget cuts. Um, we can also provide the kind of counseling that a lot of kids clearly need, which I think mm -hmm. has a direct relationship to the gun issues you know, that we have in schools and shooting issues that we have in schools. So there is a lot that Congress does in terms of Title I and Title IV funding that if we got that money increased, can have a direct visual impact both on the kids and on the quality of education in our schools. Sure. Uh, since we mentioned uh, guns and, yeah. and, and gun safety, uh, you know, one of the things I think has really helped or, or can help is, is increased SROs, the, the right. safe resource officers for schools. What are some of the other things that can be done? Are, are you, uh, I'm going to take your guns, Democrat, or? <laughs> I'm actually completely the opposite. Yeah, uh, yeah. Much to the surprise of a lot of you know, Republicans who want to walk past you at a booth at a county fair and just like, you want my gun. And my answer is really simple. I don't have time to want your gun. It, it, it is the last thing in the world I want. One of those positions I have, which I would advocate for, and which hopefully we can advocate for from a pulpit as opposed to you know, legislation, mm -hmm. is if you have a kid in your house, lock up your gun. Mm -hmm. Because we've seen numerous, too many examples, where kids in a moment of despair go in, grab the parent's gun, and that's what they use in a school shooting, or they shoot themselves. The one recently in California, okay? Despair, 16th birthday, lost his dad, went and grabbed the family gun, took it to school, shot five mm -hmm. kids before turning it on himself. Why isn't the gun in a safe? 
So the first thing I would ask for is that we lock up our guns. The second is that you stop the 100 round clips in your automatic weapons. And even gun shop owners, when I get to talk to them, you know, legitimately say, yeah, we could go to 30 without it really being too impactful. I said, yeah, but think of the difference from that 30 in a clip to 100 in an officer being able to respond and have a second to intervene, where otherwise it's 100 rounds being shot off in, in such a fast period of time. I can tell you why I don't want your gun. I don't want your gun because I grew up on Long Island, New York. I grew up studying the Revolutionary War. When I first started becoming a teacher, I taught civics class. I am a hero advocate for the Founding Fathers who grabbed their guns, went to Lexington, onto Concord, and fought against the King and the Mightiest Army by grabbing their guns. And I respect that. I also grew up and then worked in an area, in fact, it's at Pennsylvania, I'm from you know, Reading, Pennsylvania, where the first day of hunting season is as big of a day as any day of the year. <laughs> yeah. Maybe this White far behind season, Christmas, my God, but it's is... right there. You know, where, you know when, when, when folks would say, we're coming up on this day, I'd say, don't bother, we're not here. It's the first day of hunting season. You know? oh, yeah. Nobody's I've, at work. I've been out for, for white-tailed deer. I've... A lot of my former students love mm -hmm. to go to the range and shoot. I don't want your gun. What I want is a society that respects the responsibility that comes with you having your gun, and I want you to be conscious and aware that kids today are growing up in a different world, a world of social media, a world of video games, where their idea and concept of guns without gun education, okay, is not secure for the people in, in, you know, around us today, where you have to look twice when you go into a mall or to a movie theater, and I'm telling you, just please lock up your gun. Otherwise, own all the guns you want to own. Sure. You know, and I think, um, I, I know that my, my dad would really appreciate me saying that one of the things, when, when I grew up, I, we, I am, I'm a gun owner, I've got guns. Um, we, we did take a safety course. It was one of the first right. things that my dad took us to. We, we, we had this, it was a day-long gun safety course. Yeah. We learned how the guns work, why they work, and, and really how to be safe with them. You know, don't yeah. point them at anybody. Really simple things that you maybe neglect because you see people just point a gun in, in a game or something. Yeah. And, and I, I know he would really appreciate me saying that I, I can absolutely agree with seeing more education around people right. using them. Yeah. And I, I don't know how to mandate that. I, I don't know if we can mandate that, but I could see that as being a, a really good benefit for people is to, to have that education. Yeah. If, if education. I want to see any kind of legislation it would simply be that if you have kids under 18 years of age in your house, you have to have a safe. That's, yep. I think oh, that right there will up. make a huge difference right in the safety of you know, our kids in every school in America. I can tell you I start every single day, you know, at 5 a.m., waking up for my school day, and the first thing I think about every day is that every kid goes home safe that day. There is incredible pressure in every school. And I'm sure every principal, if they were honest with you, would tell you the same. Mm -hmm. That we look around, we've practiced lockdown drills, we have only one entrance into our school now instead of open gates, which would be easier for our community around. And all that is being aware of from Sandy Hook forward all the way back, Columbine, knowing that it's a part of our society today. And I think we have to address it. Yeah, I was, I was actually in high school when Columbine had happened. Yeah. And I remember the changes that our school went through. Right. And, and you know, there, there really is, I, I can tell the change between then and now because right. I was in school when it happened yeah. and seeing the metal detectors go up in every door, a security officer at almost every exit that can be. Yeah. Uh, I, it's a, it was a scarier time, especially when something like that had never happened before. Yeah. That, that I, I can see why people, I mean, I know why people are, all, are up in arms about yeah. making sure that there's safety for our kids because yeah. 
That's, that's important. Yeah. I would tell you if I could lead it to any next piece, as we talk about social issues and so on, sure. it means we also have to start seriously addressing bullying. And the cyberbullying, what, what, what social media has done and the ability for kids to Snapchat to each other mm -hmm. and to start bullying people from a distance, I can tell you as a school leader, it makes our job almost impossible. But the tension that it puts into a kid who's the victim of bullying, um, you know, now the number one causes that we find out behind suicide and gun incidents all can be trailed back into the bullying that's taking place, you know, in society today. So I think, yes, we can talk about educating kids on as far as the gun goes, but we also have to take a good hard look at what we do in terms of bullying because those two things are very much intertwined. For sure. Well, let's talk about bullying then. Um, so you know that the administration has this Be Best plan that's supposed to curb some of the bullying that happens. Yeah. And now you see a lot more in school and you, you know how it operates being a, a, an educator. Yeah. Uh, what 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 else can be done? What okay. I, I would I would imagine that a lot of uh, conservatives would say, oh, you just need to to buck up and you know just just take it. The kids are mean. It's a mean world. What, what yeah. Well, so 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 that's why I'm going to first, you know, totally mock Be Best because it's a farce when the husband of the leader of Be Best is sitting there being a bully, and the president is a bully. And the things that he says encourages and empowers others to be bullies. So you could tell me be best all you want, but then you don't make fun of you know, people whose husbands have passed away. You don't make fun of John McCain. You, know? you don't make fun of our veterans who were told, oh, I guess they just weren't tough enough. Um, so I guess the first place, if you want to have a program from the federal level, is you need to tell the president to stop being a bully. Um, now, what can you do with schools? We have programs that come into our schools. We try to have, we have, for instance, at our school, the Cougar Motto, which kids say every morning, which we try to use as ways to make decisions that could be right or not. Um, but we need to take a look at what is it that the bully is trying to get out of being a bully. And we also need to look back and see what was it like for that kid now? He, when was he bullied? What caused him, there's an old cause and effect relationship between the kid who is now a bully and most of the time when they come to you and say, well, that's what happened to me. Or when I was little, my cousin did this, or I have this problem and so on. So we talk again about the economics, mm -hmm. you know, of the social you know, integration we can make in our schools. That's a big part of it. Um, so we need the kind of support programs that we don't have anymore. The SRO officer who can go around and talk in classrooms. You know, we bring in a program this coming January, which is focused totally on that. Um, we're very proud that we took 58th graders to the Museum of Tolerance in Los Angeles, and we go every year as part of you know, our curriculum on bullying and hate, and it's all tied into studying the Holocaust. So all of those things are money, time, Educators, resources are all money, and when we talk about what can Congress do to make a difference again, mm -hmm. all that can be paid for out of Title I funding, but not when your funding is being cut. So sure. we, we definitely have to address the issue, but we also have to stop when we see a kid crying or we see a kid sitting by themselves, we have to recognize it's not okay and we have to reach out. And when a kid goes to a teacher and says so-and-so is happening, we have to journal it and follow up on it you know, with administration and not let it build until it destroys a kid. And that's the things you see every day, you know, as a school leader. Sure. So I, I um, just look at my, my list here really quick, because we're, we're going through a lot of different topics. Whatever you I, want. I'm, I, I'm amazed that we, we've yeah. been getting through some of these then. Um, and just a reminder, if you have any questions for Stu, please send them our way and we'll, we'll talk about them.
Uh, I do want to talk about uh, something that's important to me, at least, uh, sure. net neutrality. Okay. Okay. And maybe it's generational. Maybe I, I care a little bit more about it than, than some others. But yeah. um, it was something that had changed, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. Yeah. Okay. Should should internet companies be set up as utilities, and in that case, be offering a standard set price for internet across the board? Is there so negatives, pros to that? Well, I think that we're even now looking at talking about competition amongst utilities. Mm -hmm. You know, you're either an APS or an SRP customer, and your choices are limited. You know. Now going into solar power and things, you're having some impact in it. Um, but I think the internet is the same. I'm a free, open trade kind of guy. Sure. I believe in that from my business values, you know, that I shouldn't have been regulated in business. It was up to me to be competitive. And what wasn't competitive doesn't always mean cheapest. Competitive, a lot of times, like it's internet means speed, you know, reliability. Um, so I think we should have open competition. But I think we also need to, as a government, stage, look at how do we provide services to people that can't afford it. Um, for instance, I know, well, I'm not going to mention companies because I'm not sponsored by any of them. Um, so, but, but they offer discounts, for instance, to people with lower income. But we still have a high percentage of people in rural communities throughout not only CD4, but all mm -hmm. of Arizona, um, where internet access still doesn't exist. And that's something we have to address. And how we do that and how the government could be involved with different internet providers to make sure that that exists, we need. Um, we have advocated for school buses to be mm -hmm. internet hotspots and put out into our community in the evening so kids who can't afford it have access um, to it at home. So we've seen that in some of the Native American I've reservations, that, you know, yeah. parked buses out throughout you know, their, their communities. So. If government is going to get involved at all, I think we need to be involved from that point of view. Um, otherwise, I think we should have a competitive marketplace. Sure. Yeah, that's um, and I agree with that as well. You know, I, I think that that's important, especially rural internet access. Right. Uh, a fun story. I just had some problems with my own internet at home, and we have cable one is really our biggest one in the area that we have access to. Okay. So I so I went through, and I I've got a really good friend down in Phoenix works uh, with the FBI, and he's right over there by the FBI building, and his internet is so much better than mine, yeah. <laughs> and he pays less than I do right. for for what I get, and I understand some of the infrastructure might be a, an issue there. Is there anything that you could do infrastructure-wise for, uh, you know, we talked about parking buses for some right. of the kids. Is there is there anything else that can be done? Is there more funding that could be funneled? Is there, do we want to do that? Is that putting our finger on? on? So we do want to have a minimum standard because internet today is competitive business around the world. Internet access today is the quality of education that a student can get. You know, I told you a little bit about my school, you know, briefly, but I can tell you we have a media center now. We used to think of libraries as places where all the books are. Today mm -hmm. ours has 3D printers, virtual reality machines. All of those things require um, internet access. And if we can't get high-speed internet access, then the quality of what the kids can learn, mm -hmm. uh, we won't be competitive. So I think we have to look at, this is the minimum access that we should have across America. And you know, federal money built dams, you know? Mm -hmm. Se secured the nation, moved mountains, built highways. Well, the internet is just another highway. It's another way that we get to places, that we trade information, that we do business. You know, I mean, more commerce is happening there. You know, uh, I, I said to, to Mrs. Starkey the other day, come on, I want to go to the mall and buy a present. She said, I'll look it up by the time you get home. <laughs> and so, so 
Internet is a vital part of everybody's life today. Kids are growing up with cell phones and doing things that I sure. don't even understand, sure. you know, to this day. If I have problems with my phone, I go to a nine-year-old. So we need to make sure that we have the structure that helps us compete around the world. Sure. Yeah, I can tell you that I don't quite understand TikTok the way maybe I should. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and I'm staying away from that. <laughs> yeah, just keep clear. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk really quickly, uh, only because I think it's a really important issue and kind of historic at the moment is impeachment. Mm -hmm. And I think I, we talked about this once on the show. We, we had a little bit of a round table and we talked to the, the Yavapai County uh, Democratic leader here and uh, a past councilwoman. And we were talking about impeachment. It just it came up in our conversation about the candidates that were that were running, and and at the time I think it was clear that I I did not agree with impeachment. It was in, gosh, July was it? I, I don't remember. Yeah, it was it was July we were talking about it, and and I, I wasn't in favor of it. I felt like impeachment for the sake of policy disagreements lessened lessened how big of an issue impeachment would be. Uh, it would lessen it for any future person in in office, but now. Seeing that we just impeached uh, our fourth, I think this is the fourth person third. we've third third we've impeached. Um, if you were on the house, or if you were a representative for the House of Representatives, what would you have done? I'd have voted yes for impeachment. Yes for impeachment, and yeah. why? Well, I think that the evidence stands clear, and not only the evidence from others, but in the way he represented exactly what he did himself. Uh, I believe he clearly wanted dirt on the Bidens, and I believe he was willing to use the position that he holds in order to get that information. So if that is the article of impeachment, then I vote yes. Now, I don't know that I'm as partisan in terms of this is the most important thing that we could do right now, but clearly the reason for a yes vote is there. What I can also tell you is, you know, being a native New Yorker, as you know, most of your viewers can now have di <laughs> yeah. dissected by yeah. now, yeah. Um, I've watched Donald Trump for 40 years. He violated agreements with unions. He went bankrupt. Mm -hmm. He didn't pay debts he had for his casinos or his airline. Um, he has clearly egotistically driven the debate to where he has always wanted it to go. He has spoken in his books, Art of the Deal, his first one, about how he lied to banks and to lenders in order to be able to fund his casinos. I think that taking the attitude he's used to run his business his whole life and then saying it's okay to do that in our government, I think he's guilty of what he was charged for and therefore the yes vote should be there. Now. What to do next, I think I differ with a lot of people, and that is it's my opinion that I would never send the impeachment to the Senate. I would never give Mitch McConnell and his already clearly aligned you know, White House position you know, the opportunity to let the president go around and say, and look, the Senate didn't convict me, told you not guilty, perfect phone call. Okay? So I would hold it, and I would never send it, and the only way I would send it is if, God forbid, he's reelected and Mitch McConnell loses and the Democrats have the Senate, which is why the Mark Kelly campaign is so important that we get every vote and we get the majority in the Senate, uh, then I would send it. I would send it with a Democratic majority. And then let's have a viable debate. That does, still doesn't mean there would be enough votes to convict, but let's have a viable debate led by somebody with integrity instead of Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham who sold their souls out you know, to Donald Trump. 
One of the things that I remember, you know, being about 18, 19 years old or so during Watergate, was it was Republicans. As the evidence mounted, it was Republicans. It was Howard Baker, Fred Thompson, turning around to the president and saying, okay, there's too much here now. You gotta go. And then he resigns. He resigns because he's told by fellow Republicans, we can't defend this. This is inexcusable. And he resigns. And the integrity that the Republican Party had in those days is non-existent today. So I would hope that, again, as we go through this election cycle, we get away from the idea that we stand for things because we're registered as a Republican or we're registered as a Democrat, and instead we stand for things because it's who we are as human beings. So yes, impeach him. Yes, he's certainly guilty of abuse of his power you know, as President of the United States. But I think what we need to do is look at him a whole lot deeper into this election cycle. He said, tax returns after my audit is done. This is four years later, and there's no tax returns. He said, oh, I've always given my whole life, and now we find out not only his Trump charity was a fraud, and he's already paid a fine for it, but Eric Trump's tra uh, charity is a fraud. Everything for that family has been about the money they can make at the expense of others, including thousands of working people, thousands of small business owners you know, over the decades, and it's time for us to hold them accountable for it. Sure. Um, one of the things that I, just to just talk to you about it, I, I would imagine that if, if Republicans or, or conservatives or anybody that was listening in, thinking about four years ago, um, when Merrick Garland's nomination was held up to wait until a, a more positive right. uh, Congress, a more positive Senate, to just hold it back and wait, I know a lot of Democrats really disagreed with that, and I was one of them as well. Right. I, I, you know, I think constitutionally that the president should have been able to pick just the same as Donald Trump, right. duly elected, would have been able to pick his, his Supreme Court like he, he did for um, uh, Kennedy. Would holding that impeachment and not sending it to the Senate, would that kind of be the same thing? Would that be, how, how would that be different? Okay, I'll own that. No, no, really, yeah. I, I, I just, yeah. just curious. Uh, no, I, I, so, so, I think what we have to take a look at is if it was an honorable leader in the Senate mm -hmm. and justice would be held, and, and even with an honest and fair trial right now, I don't believe he would be convicted you know, no, and, 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 and taken out of office. But we don't have that. And the people would have the right to hear from witnesses, and the people should have the right to have public hearings just like we had in Watergate. And that's not going to happen because Mitch McConnell is a liar, a cheat, and a thief, and he's in bed with Donald Trump. So why would you send something there knowing that it's just gonna be brushed out the door and the justice that's supposed to go with the articles of impeachment doesn't exist? So if you're gonna tell me, okay, Mitch McConnell will recuse himself and an honest hearing would be held, I would send him, but that's not gonna happen. So why send them now into this environment where it's just a hole waiting to absorb this in Donald Trump's favor? Oh yeah, no, I, I, I think that right now it's so important to watch what precedent this sets, right? right. I mean, if, if this does go the way that I'm expecting it to go when it reaches the Senate and nothing does change from this, it would mean that, God forbid, a Democratic president, which we will have eventually, if it's not this next election, it will be the next right. election or the election after that, right. we will eventually have a Democrat in there. And I don't want to have to be the Mitt Romney on the sideline. I'm not going to ever be in the Senate, I don't think. But I don't right. want to have to be a voice to say, hey, you know, like, let's, 
th this is not right. And this precedent will now be set for any future president. And I think that's most concerning to me is, is what it will set for anybody to come. So I believe there was sufficient reason to hold the hearings mm -hmm. for impeachment. I believe it does exist. And a lot of Democrats have said that there have been irregularities or sloppy work done in what led up mm -hmm. to getting to where we got to finally. Remember, it was not like, oh yeah, let's go start impeachment. There was a process in between. There was the Mueller, Mueller report you know, through the whole thing. And there were plenty of Democrats who were not yet ready to go towards impeachment until finally it became clear and overwhelming you know, of what you know, this president has done. So I would hope that, again, we would get leaders and members of Congress with integrity. I certainly would be one where I would not sit there and say, oh, party lines, I have to now do this, even though it's against the values that I hold. I will not do that. Mm. I would never yep. do that. No. So I believe that not only politics but life works in a pendulum. And I believe we've gotten to a point of such severe partisanship, and I'll blame Democrats as quickly as I'll blame Republicans, of such partisanship and the inability to you know, sit down with the other side and work on compromises that hopefully it swings back the other way. And the voters all over this country, from local elections all the way through the presidency, say, you know what, now I want a person of value. And I'm not demeaning all you know, sure, members sure. By, by any means. But clearly, the Republican Party has sold itself out. The Republican Party of moderates or even, you know, honorable conservatism, you know, and their ideals, you know, are gone. They are probably dead and buried, you know, and I wouldn't be surprised that we eventually swung back the other way. Um, I believe that the young people of this country will rise up in numbers we have never seen before, maybe the protests of the Vietnam War, things like that, um, and that we will have a watershed election and that either the Republican Party will recognize that it sold itself out out of fear or desperation or whatever it is, you know, to a tyrant and that the days of that party are over. You know, I think that uh, you, you touched on something that I really near and dear to me is that getting younger people out to vote. Right. And for the longest time, I wasn't sure why young, like people my age didn't go out there, and I'm 30, right. uh, but people a little bit younger, a little bit older than me didn't. And a lot of times they'd say, well, I don't care about politics. Well, I don't want to be involved in right. politics. But it does affect us in, in pretty much every way. And I think finally, I, I understand the reason people my age don't, are not involved in the political system, don't usually come out to vote, is because government has never really done a lot for my generation. We, you know, starting in the mid 90s, we had this hyper-partisanship that I, I, I do think it's, it's, it's a both sides thing. I think it started with, with uh, Newt Gingrich right. in the 90s. And Democrats are now you know, part of that as well. And I, I don't know how they wouldn't have been. I, it's just something that happened. But there really hasn't been large policy changes that affected my life beyond maybe the Affordable Care Act because then I, you know, I, I was right. able to have health care into my mid-20s, which was a godsend because I got sick in my early 20s. Right. <laughs> but... You know, how do you get people out to vote? How, how do you change this partisanship that, that is so affecting us right now that we can't seem to get past? You know, I, I said I don't think every issue is going to have a solution where we could sit down by a fire and sing Kumbaya. Right. But if you like Pepsi and I like Coke, at least we could sit by the fire yeah, with let's our Let's go get seat. a soda. We could at least <laughs> sit with our seat, right. you know? That's, 
We should be able to sit, you with your Pepsi, me with my Coke. We should be able to sit together and, you know, be able to get either one. And be, we should be able to sit together, though, and be able to have the same debate about tax rates and, and health care and, and foreign policy. I think maybe the problem we've had, you know, they always say we don't really recognize what we need until we're in a crisis, you know. So for me, I grew up, it was towards the end of the Vietnam War, you know. I was the last, first class after the last draft. Okay, is me. So I'm very aware of, of what it was, you know, at that time. So you have a different consciousness. I believe we're getting to that point again now, but it's on climate change and it's on social issues and it's on awareness of social justice. Things used to be okay if you didn't see them. That's not the way it is anymore. And maybe it's social media that makes everything so prominent in front of the eyes of young people today. But I believe the next crusade of engagement is young people. It's, it, and it's not 18 to 30-year-olds, it's 12-year-old to 30-year-olds because mm -hmm. they are very aware and they are walking out of schools on climate strike day. Oh, yeah. my, my younger sister is one they, of them. They're knowledgeable <laughs> yep. about what it is, you know? So I believe that right now, young people around the world are seeing you know, what is happening to the world around them. You know, I, I, I will tell you a quick story, and that is that when my Jacqueline was a youngster of five, she's now in her 20s, you know, she came home from school, you know, as a very young kid and said, Dad, you have to save the polar bears. <laughs> and I looked at her and I said, Jacqueline, I'm sorry, I can't save the polar bears. She says, but they have to swim too far in between ice. You know, when they're drowning, mm -hmm. when they're looking for fish, you gotta do something. And I said, Jacqueline, my dad's generation put us on this path with coal burning factories. Mine ignored it because the polar bear was fine. Mm. Yours will rise up and yours will recognize that things have to change and yours will be the one that will save what's left of the polar bears. And I believe we did you know, hit that prophecy, which is the young kids today are aware of what's happening to the climate impacting them today, but also the potential consequences of it tomorrow. Sure. And I think we're gonna see an amazing you know, renaissance of social activism. We're seeing it now mm. on these issues and things. Um, but we're also seeing it in places we didn't know we would see it. We're seeing social justice, you know. I, I, I said many years ago, in fact, 2004, in, in my last tenure there, I was able to meet and marry a beautiful woman and my sister should be able to do the same. And I was left hanging out. I stood for marriage equality 10 years before even Bernie Sanders, decade before really Joe Biden. Yeah. I stood up in 2004 and, and, and said it. And I can tell you I'm as feverish about it now. But the world wasn't ready to see it. Democrats were hiding from it. But it was as right then oh, yeah. as it is right now. So now we're seeing a generation of young people growing up with a different consciousness of what it means to just be able to be in love with somebody and to have benefits and to go to a hospital to see them, you know, when, when, when they're sick. And this renaissance around all these social issues is, a, I'm older than 30, okay? I'm 62, okay? So to see this change happening still in my lifetime is as exciting as it's gonna to be to watch the next 20 years. As I finish and run this campaign and try to bring about change and try to bring about this renaissance and give voice to people who otherwise might not have it on the ballot, uh, it's going to be even more exciting to watch your generation grow up, take over, and the kids behind you and really lead the change that we want the world to be. I'm so excited to see see my generation start to get involved. Yeah. I'm so excited for it. Yeah. I think I want to leave it there. Okay. Uh, did you... Uh, 
do you have a presidential candidate that you like? I'm or? a Bernie Sanders guy. You're a Bernie Sanders I'm, guy. I'm, I'm in for Bernie. <laughs> I will be an advocate for whoever the Democratic nominee is because this mm -hmm. election is so crucial. But I've always been a Bernie guy. Before he announced four years ago that he was going to run, um, disappointed in how that one went. I think we would have had a different president, you know, if it mm -hmm. was, you know, Bernie was the nominee. I hope he's the nominee this time. I'll do whatever I can to see that Bernie <laughs> is the nominee, and I'll I'm running to hopefully be a U.S. congressman with the Bernie Sanders presidency. Awesome. Is there any other things you wanted to say to our audience before we? Uh, StuStarkey2020.com. Sign a petition online with the Secretary of State, and if you like what you hear. Five bucks a month is all I ask through ActBlue. <laughs> and I thank you for having me yes, and the chance to get this out Thank you so much. We, we really talked about a lot of complex issues yeah. for our, our, last, our last show for the year. So thank you so much for joining us here. My pleasure. This was excellent. Guys, next year we've got some really, really exciting things coming on. Uh, we're going to be talking about immigration uh, in February. Uh, we're still getting some guests for January, but it's going to look really exciting. So thank you for watching us this year. And Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays to you all. Take care.